Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matthew Valencia, Special Assignments Editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. And on this show... As the Olympics play out in Rio... Sumaya Keynes is here to tell us how countries can go for the gold. If you're choosing where to throw your money, you maybe don't want to go for football, which only has you know, one medal uh, or two. You really want to go for things like cycling or gymnastics, where there are lots and lots of medals to be won. And our finance correspondent, Krista Koskello, talks about the burgeoning distressed debt market. So the NPL the market is, is growing significantly in Europe, and the sort of specialised market players are very bullish about it growing further. But first, there are currently around 500 scripted shows on television. Do we need that many? How much TV is too much? There's this other notion that you reach something called the paradox of choice, which is you give people too many choices and it breeds discontent because ultimately it's very hard to pay attention to all the choices. It becomes work, essentially, to sort through everything, every opportunity you're giving them. That's John Landgraf president of FX Network at the Edinburgh International Television Festival. And ultimately, I think all businesses, all industries basically go through, they overexpand and then they consolidate. And all, all I can say is that in my, in my view, I think that um, I think less would be more. I think a few, uh, you know, 300 television shows would be better than 500 television shows. And I According to Mr. Landgraf, the industry's insatiable appetite for shows will bring about its own demise. I, think, I see business kind of eating the eating the creative tail right now. There's a, there's a feeding frenzy. There's a sense of, of great amounts of money to be made. Well, with me on the line now to discuss so-called peak TV and the rise of Netflix is Gaddy Epstein, our media editor. Gaddy, let's first start with Mr Langraf himself. It's clear he's caused a stir among executives and in the press. How big a player is he? Well, he's, he's a big player. He makes some of the best uh, TV uh, there is out there. Uh, he's a very well respected uh, in the industry uh, and by critics. Um, some call him the mayor of TV or the smartest man in TV. Uh, he uh, he is taken quite seriously, and when he and he has kind of a professorial air about him. So when he gets going on these topics, he you know he can really deliver a lecture as he has here. Right, and and, and what do you make of his assessment of the the television industry today? I mean, is it true uh, that there are simply too many shows? I don't think there are. I, I do think that there's too many shows for uh, us all to digest or for any one of us to digest. But I'm not too worried about uh, peak TV. Uh, I think in general, the uh, heavy investment in television in the last few years has increased competition, raised the standards. I mean, let's face it, TV didn't used to be um, all that great. And now, uh, I think starting with HBO and then with channels like FX that all compete for subscribers uh, and affiliate fees, and now with Netflix, which is also subscription-based, and Amazon, I think uh, the measure of what to put on television is much more towards quality than towards sort of broader ratings-based or advertising-based fare. With only so many hours in the day, uh, and most of us spending much of our time doing other things uh, in work or at school or wherever, uh, how can there really be room for 
for more television in our lives? Well, I mean, there's also uh, the question of which uh, segment of the market is being addressed by which shows. Um, there's not, not all the shows are being made for you or me. Um, there's shows being made for everyone. Uh, and I, I think that is the argument that, you know, folks like Netflix would make, is that uh, prestige television like HBO and FX offer um, appeals to uh, one market segment, uh, whereas there's uh, plenty of other people out there, whether it's, you know, children and teenagers or uh, people in different countries who have different tastes uh, who are looking for other kinds of television. Uh, so everybody likes quality TV, but also people like uh, broader fare as well. Okay, so, so let's now move on to, to Netflix. Is it a monopolist or a potential monopolist, as, as Mr. Landgraf says? Uh, I'm not too worried about Netflix uh, becoming a monopoly. Uh, first of all, they have very strong competition. Uh, Amazon, perhaps their biggest threat, is very well funded. They've just announced a big increase in their investment in content. And of course, uh, they're not looking to make money only from video, uh, far from it. And then there's plenty of other competitors. There's Hulu in the U.S., there's YouTube uh, globally. There are streaming services around the world. Major Hollywood studios themselves, uh, some of them will go direct uh, to consumer with their own streaming services. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of competition for Netflix. Uh, second, the barrier is pretty low for new players to get content in some viewable form online. I think lower than ever. There's always the chance of, of new players breaking out. And then third, I think the risk is low because uh, quality content is differentiated and, and people place a value on it. Uh, you can't just uh, industrialize uh, storytelling. And John Langraff likes to say that you can't make stories like you, like you make jet engines. And I think that's true, but I think that's also why we have nothing to fear. So it seems from, from what Mr. Langraff is saying that, that he and some others seem to believe that the industry is sowing the seeds of its own demise. Uh, others seem to be arguing that, um, that it's entering a new golden era. What do you think? Uh, I'm more inclined to think that we're entering an era where TV is getting uh, better and better. Uh, production values are better. The competition to make uh, great TV has never been greater. There's no sign of uh, overall investment declining. Now, there might be a, a time where we do reach peak TV and we have fewer shows on, fewer shows being made than we have now. But that doesn't mean even, even Mr. Landgraf uh, uh, acknowledges that doesn't mean uh, we're going to have a sudden bursting of a bubble. Uh, we'll have maybe just a few, uh, some fewer shows. Uh, meanwhile, I think the overall standard has been raised. Uh, and I think the benchmark for making TV has been, can you win passionate subscribers? Can you win passionate viewers? And I think that's, that's only good for, for quality of what we see. And so, Gaddy, out of the hundreds of shows that, that, that are being um, produced and worked on, which have caught your attention? Uh, which do you think are most noteworthy? Well, I'm a big fan of the shows on Landgraf's network, FX. I'm caught up on The Americans. I loved uh, the second year of uh, Fargo. I uh, have seen a couple episodes of an upcoming show, Atlanta, on FX that I think people are going to love. They're making terrific television. Also watching a good bit of Netflix uh, last week. I'm in Europe uh, reporting on Netflix, and on, uh, to recover from jet lag last week, I binge-watched Stranger Things and really enjoyed that. Gaddy Epstein, thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. And to our listeners, if you have any thoughts on Peak TV, let us know. Tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Now we move on to the Olympics, which have, of course, been taking place in Rio de Janeiro over the past fortnight. Just what does it take to achieve glory? So Mayor Keynes, our economics correspondent, has been looking into the data. 
So, Mayor, welcome. Hello. What strategies work for countries looking to increase their medal count? Well, uh, it really helps if you are a big, rich country with a huge, huge population. So you can, you know, you have lots of people to draw your winning athletes from. Um, but there are some more specific things you can do. Essentially, you really need to throw a lot of money at it. You could also pick your sport strategically, right? So if you're choosing where to throw your money, you maybe don't want to go for football, which only has you know, one medal uh, or two. You really want to go for things like cycling or gymnastics, where there are lots and lots of medals to be won. And so if we look at the medal table as it stands now, uh, Britain is in second place after the United States with 16 gold medals. A tally that may well be even higher by the time our listeners hear this. This is pretty shocking, given given that Britain never used to do well at the Olympics. Uh, it only got one gold medal at the uh, the ninety six uh, Atlanta Games, for instance. What's it done to increase its count? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty amazing turnaround. Um, and, and the answer really is money. So under John Major, they threw a huge, huge amount of funding at the challenge. Um, and essentially, that money seems to be paying off. Um, also, there was another huge batch of funding after uh, London won the, the right to host the Olympics in 2012. So the other thing is that, that Britain's done, it's not just the amount of money, right? It's how it's targeted and how it responds to events. So in Britain, there's been this kind of fairly ruthless targeting of funding towards the sports that people thought would do well. Are there any particular sports that they've that they focused on there? Right. So cycling, obviously, has been a big one. For a poorer country, it's much harder to invest in the infrastructure. So, you know, Britain had a, the advantage that it could get above that hurdle to kind of do well in the cycling. The key thing, though, that Britain's done is it's been responsive, right? So when a team didn't do as well in a particular sport, the funding was cut and reallocated towards sports that did kind of exceed the medal count. So for cycling, when the British team got 12 medals in 2012, its funding increased um, by about 4 million from about 26 million pounds. Right. And there were a lot of people cheering on Monday evening when Thiago de Silva won Brazil's second gold medal of the Games in the pole vault. We've talked about Britain and its uplifting experience with the Games. How have other countries tried to get more gold medals? So it's really fun to, to look around and, and see what the different countries try. So this strategy of kind of sending the funding towards people who are likely to do well seems to be fairly common. So in Canada, there's this kind of on the podium strategy that they tried after they hosted the Olympics twice and won no, no gold medals. The other thing is you can award cash prizes for getting a gold medal. So in Singapore, apparently they're offering uh, $753,000 for a gold medal and $230,000 in Kazakhstan. The US only offers kind of around $25,000 for a gold medal. But it, it, it's kind of amazing because Britain doesn't offer anything well, like that. Well, so they just uh, have to make do with the, uh, the the joy of winning a gold medal, which I'm right. sure is enough for most of them. But. Yeah, I mean, so, so Britain's approach is, I think, to kind of, you know, give out that money before uh, you win the medal. So if, you, if you're kind of particularly promising in Britain, then you get paid, I think, £28,000 to live on. I haven't actually come across kind of hard evidence on whether this works. But if you were going to put the direct the funding at any point, then you really want to do it before they win the gold medal. I think at that level of athletics, the idea that, you know, Usain Bolt is really being motivated to run that, you know, <laughs> millisecond faster because of the cash prize just kind of seems seems a bit unreasonable. Um, I think really 
probably a much, much more important determinant of success is the amount of support you get before you actually get to the games. And do we know anything about which strategies work in terms of, of creating sustainable success? Again, kind of hard economic evidence on this is, is fairly scarce. But just looking, if you compare kind of Canada and, and Great Britain, um, it does seem like when you divert, when you direct the funding, you really want to focus on the sport as a whole rather than individuals within that sport. So Canada's focused on promoting individuals with promise and and some people are kind of they're worried that as those individuals age out of the system that's not going to kind of lead to long-term medal counts so mayor Keynes, thank you very much thank you last we move on to italy's ailing banks a few weeks ago we described the growing troubles of italy's financial sector as the new brexit in other words a national crisis with far-reaching implications EU rules require bail-in plans, which involve forcing bondholders to take the pain and recapitalise banks, rather than bail-outs, which put the burden on taxpayers. Another solution has been offered, selling off huge stocks of banks' non-performing loans. Krista Coscello, our finance correspondent, is here with me now. Krista, could you first give us a primer on what non-performing loans, or NPLs as they're alternatively known, Ah, finance like, loves to retreat into jargon, but actually we need to remember that NPLs are are actually a homeowner who can't make their mortgage payments, who maybe lost a job, or a, a small business owner who you know is selling some sort of product, but then recession came and the sales dropped. So the, the NPLs are a very heterogeneous category of sort of consumer loans, mortgage loans, SME loans. These are people who who took out loans for specific purposes and now lo- no longer can pay them back. Sometimes they pledged collateral to sort of guarantee the, the loan principle, and sometimes they didn't, depending on the circumstance. And, and how developed or well-functioning is the market for, for non-performing loans in, in Europe? This market has grown quite strongly. So last year, sales were uh, about 100 billion euros in Europe. And this year, sales are already above that, around 110 billion for just the first half of this year alone. So the NPL market is is growing significantly in Europe. And the sort of specialized market players are very bullish about it growing further. Right. So you, you've been having some interesting discussions with, with players in the distressed debt markets. Uh, what exactly are they saying? I expected going in that these specialized players like Apollo, Cerberus, Lone Star, they're sort of a handful of American funds that they would be talking about the loan portfolios, but actually they they cared a lot about bank capital needs. And I spoke with Apollo's head of Europe, who told me that basically the NPL market is is even from their perspective driven by banks' capital needs. So they speak with banks to sort of look into how they can best help banks sort of thicken their capital buffers. And in many of these firms actually sort of, even if they have mostly buy up distressed debt, they also have private equity arms. So sometimes they offer to actually do some recapitalization of the banks themselves or to buy off sort of businesses from banks. So often loan servicing businesses is, is particularly popular because these NPLs, you know, need a lot of active involvement. A loan servicer is essentially just a company who either calls up debtors to sort of pressure them to pay or to agree a sort of new uh, rescheduled uh, payment or, you know, who actually initiate the judicial process to recover collateral if they have pledged collateral. And so it often makes sense for the distressed set investors to buy these loan servicing units off banks or just other business areas like an insurance company that was a division of a bank. So obviously Italy's troubled banks are, are the focus at the moment. But what do the experiences of other countries tell us about how this can be done and indeed what, what the barriers are to, to doing it. 
So I think the the experience of a lot of other countries shows that that a huge pileup of of non-performing loans can only really be dealt with with pretty heavy-handed government involvement. So um, historically, many countries have set up bad banks. So sort of the government actually sets up a pot of money that buys off these non-performing loans from banks close to their written down book value and then slowly sells them off or actually tries to do the loan recovery themselves. Where, where have we seen that? In Europe, we've seen that recently in Spain and Ireland, although Italy is not allowed to set up a bad bank now that EU rules have recently been toughened. So Italy is in that sense in a very tight spot and the securitization law is in some sense a response to, to try to address that. Earlier on, um, these sorts of bad banks were very successful, for example, in the East Asian financial crisis in, in Japan and Korea around the late 1990s. So they, they've provided a way of also getting a lot of volume. So in Italy, for example, all the banks are really small. So each of them individually has a sort of small pot of loans, whereas if they were put in one centralized organ that then sort of deals with them centrally and sells them off centrally, that also makes it much easier for there to be a, a flourishing market in these NPLs rather than each little bank selling off just a small bunch of loans at a time. Krista Cascello, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about non-performing loans, pick up the upcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Matthew Valencia. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.